welcome to Traeger Method Podcast, episode 15. This episode is a conversation with Rick Froberg of Pitchfork, Drive Like Jehu, Hot Snakes, Obits. Those are bands you would associate his name with, him with, his voice, his guitar playing. We talk about a little bit about those bands, not that much about them, honestly. We, we mostly focus on his introduction to punk, to the punk subculture. He did a fanzine called Subculture. That was the first time I ever became aware of him. That's how we got to know each other. We talk about that. <clears throat> the Anarchy Picnics come up. Uh, San Diego Punk. I had forgotten all about those. The Anarchy Picnics. Afternoon get-togethers. Even those descended into police violence. He, he shares stories about that. We also talk about BMX. I mean, honestly, that's the bulk of this conversation. BMX talk. Rick and I both had a BMX adolescence. It was a huge point of fascination for both of us before punk and during it, too. I mean, we fixed up my bike together, he and I. My old BMX bike, we tricked it out. We'd go riding. We had a lot of fun doing that. So we go deep on BMX, probably too deep for most people. I mean, we get into gear, talk about headstocks, cranks, number plates, fetishism of brands, of, of equipment, of styles, the fear of racing, the fun of racing, the defeat I talk about the humiliation of being a big guy who didn't often win. The delight that other racers would take in beating me. Look, Mom, I beat that guy. We're getting into that kind of stuff. It's an interesting conversation to me. Maybe it'll be interesting to you, too. I hope so. Even if you're not into BMX, even if you don't know anything about it, you probably have something in your life that you collected or participated in that meant a lot to you. My Little Ponies or something. I've been looking at old BMX YouTubes. The BMX Museum is a online place where you can look at all the old bikes. It's, it's an online BMX museum. Look at all the old parts, logos, so into that stuff. It's comforting looking back. It can be. Looking forward, not so comforting. Looking at the present, not so comforting. I mean, I've made this effort in this podcast to focus on To not, to make this a refuge where you can relax and just listen to friends talking about things they were interested in, stories, things they survived, things we um, love, people we love, stories of events and times and places that shaped us. Catch up with, catch up with old friends catching up. But I have to say, 
you know, going forward right now in this country, it's bone chilling. It's terrifying. Really. I mean, I don't have to tell you that. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you probably agree. I'm not going to try and sum up my state of mind right now, but, you know, it's just incredibly psychically disturbing living in this time, period. It just is. I mean, three, 4,000 Americans dying every day of COVID-19, the pandemic at, at its peak now after so long. It's just so tiring and horrifying and exhausting. And, and you know, I've had now friends whose parents have died. My brother has COVID-19 right now. He's doing okay. Let's hope he stays doing okay. He lives in the UK in London. Got something like 30% of all Londoners have it or something like that. He's doing okay. This country, the United States, not doing okay. This planet, planet Earth, not doing okay. I mean... I guess this is just the madness I've always felt was coming, that it would just intensify. I mean, I think everything is to do with global warming in the big picture. As this world careens off its rocker, it, people, are cor- of course, are going to go into complete alternate realities of illusion, retreat, advancement into chaos, retreat from chaos. False prophets, up is down, black is white, white is black, the sky is purple, who cares? You know, I mean, naturally it's going to fly off the, uh, off the handle. Of course there's going to be death cults and lies and rumors and conspiracy. I mean, yes, obviously that's what's going to happen totally to be expected. Does that make it any less disturbing? No. It's painful. It's, you know, depressing and horrifying. And I have my ups and downs with with it. Right now, today, I got to admit, today I woke up feeling a little down, definitely. This week, you know, I don't know that there's going to be full-blown outbreak of civil war. It's certainly a possibility, but I I think it's really just, you know, probably going to unfold slowly over the next year. You're going to have, you know, just further destabilization. Who knows? Who knows what we're going to have? But I will say this. It's not going to be good. I mean, whatever that means. The world out there, this, this society, this culture, we're at our flipping, you know, we're reaching omega point or something. And that's all the more reason just to bring it back to this podcast, which is what you're listening to right now. The point of this, the political statement that it makes or purpose that it serves, the societal impact it's meant to have in its tiny little eensy-weensy micro way is to 
give refuge refueling to people I like, and that's it. To unite, to, to bring together friends, to reconnect people, to talk to people, to have fun, to write history together. To demonstrate community in action. You know, I was thinking the other day about like Nazi skinheads. You know, we talked about them a lot in this podcast when you talk about the punk days. And I was thinking, you know, you would never hear a podcast like this about Nazi skinheads. Like a bunch of Nazi skinheads talking about, oh, the good old days when we were all having fun together and we cared about each other and we did bands and fanzines and and we would travel and meet people and all these connections that we've maintained over the course of 50 years or 40, 37 years or whatever, Um, you know, and we've grown and changed and we're all doing cool stuff now. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't exist with that side. It exists with this side the side that was fighting the Nazis then that's fighting the Nazis now. You know, the side that's against that. And that's, and I guess that's one thing I, I do want to like point to and point out. I mean, it's an obvious thing, but it's still, it needs to be, it's like, what are the differences? That cult, it, the connections are so thin amongst these people. I mean, just look at their their God, Donald Trump, literally a person with no redeeming qualities whatsoever, like none. Everything based on a lie, everything based on misdirection, miscommunication, lies, deceit. You know, you go, how, how can that ever be sustainable other than anything else other than just a wrecking ball? That's what it is. They want to wreck everything, just like skinheads back in the old days. You put on a show, they come to wreck it. You put out things, you start a band, they come to beat it up. They, we put on, you know, it's always about just wrecking, wrecking, wrecking. So my podcast, it's about making, it's about creating, it's about building, doing something positive. So here's my conversation with Rick Froberg. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope we all survive this week and the coming years to come, and months and weeks. All right. Love you all. Rick, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Good to hear your voice after so, so many years. Yeah. You you live in Brooklyn, is that right? I live in Brooklyn, yeah. yeah you've been there for how long? In Brooklyn, uh, twenty three years. Holy shit! So yeah. you did you move there from San Diego from the Southland? Yes, I did. What what prompted that? At the time, I just I had a girlfriend, and I um we had a long distance distance relationship, and I moved out here to. I was sick of San Diego, and I. Started to have a go out the, out the relationship out here, and um, so I moved out here, and I just ended up staying. <laughs> Never got out of here. Nice. What do you do? You do you work as an illustrator? Is that besides being a musician? I do. Um, 
I uh, it's, it's, it's a I've, I've been freelance for a long time, so that's yeah. I, it's uh, with both two things combined sort of augment. You know, one augments the other thing, and I I managed to make a living. You got a living doing that. Well, congratulations to, to that for sure. Yeah. So, <laughs> when did we meet? What year did you and I meet? Do you recall? Would that have been like '85? And how did we meet? Was it through the fanzines? I think it might have been through uh, Leading Edge. So Leading Edge preceded Subculture. That was your fanzine. When did you that first put out Subculture? Yeah. Uh, when did that? Uh, right. I think uh, right after Leading Edge. I think I think you had like two issues. Leading Edge was like a real fanzine, wasn't it? Like Subculture was like. Yeah, I, I I think that's how I met you, and I, I'm not sure if I met Don Ankrum through you. I don't, I don't I don't remember. I think I used to see you at like, uh, like Adams Avenue or something like the shows and stuff like that. Yeah. So when did you start going to shows in San Diego? Probably about 1985 or four. I kind of had kind of a late start in there. But what was the first show you saw? First show I think I saw at uh, the first yeah first show I saw I think it was Raven and Anthrax at the oh uh, wow you were at that show yeah 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 I was, so were uh, you coming to punk kind of from metal yes yes so what bands had you been into prior to getting going to that show uh you know the usual stuff Judas Priest and Metallica and blah blah blah, blah you know all, all that when, you know I had like a metal phase and I still like metal um but um. Do you yeah. remember at that Raven and Anthrax show when the guy from Raven told everybody to stop slamming? I don't remember that part, but I do remember I was scared at the show because it was my first show and there was, there was uh, whatever, the San Diego skinhead guys showed up. Oh, yeah. and uh, They were pretty menacing. Yeah, they were menacing. I was, I was, I was, it was my first exposure to them and I was, I was uh, kind of terrifying. <laughs> and, um, and, were there um, tons of fights at that show? No, but they just had this, these. It was just the way they they sort of behaved and they looked and they, they the way they were slamming around into each other. And I just had never seen that before. And I was it was a uh, sort of the these, these sort of thousand yard stares on their face. They, 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 they was, it was it was terrifying to me. I don't I don't know. Yeah, it was pretty bone chilling. At that point, I was fully used to them. But uh, yeah, I, I remember that being one of those shows where there was definitely a more, more so than maybe some other thrash metal shows. I thought that one had like a, a lot of real metal people who weren't at all used to punk things. No, and, yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought with Raven, like they definitely were like I thought. I remember thinking, okay, Anthrax seems to be hip to like what's coming in terms of crossover. Yeah, they're pretty thrashy, and they're from New York and stuff like that. They, they, I think they, yeah. they understood what's going on. But I definitely got the feeling like Raven is not going to make the leap. <laughs> just like, yeah, yeah. I remember him saying like, "Okay, we got to stop with all that punk rock shit. We bang our heads at metal shows. We don't slam dance." And everybody's like, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> like you're slam policing. <clears throat> so, how did you first get into? What's your arc of musical fascination? Like, you grew up. Listening to metal. When did you discover that? No, I didn't grow up listening to it. I just, I just, uh, you know, I think around at some point in high school, I just got into metal. Uh, I felt like an outsider. I don't know, it's kind of outsider music, as far as I knew. And then I uh, just sort of heard punk from from mutual friends. You know, 
we had like a smoking area at my school. I'd hang out there and blah, blah, and exchange uh, ideas about music and stuff like that. And I finally got here like, I think the first real punk rock record I ever heard was uh, that was Discharge, Hear Nothing, See Nothing, Say Nothing. You ever heard that record? Oh, yeah. And, and, and I still listen to that record and it still sends like chills up and down my spine. It's so great. I think it's really great. Oh, it's amazing. Um, I've I've been thinking about, I mean, like this last year when, especially when Portland was just being, it was political violence every day almost. And then every weekend, I thought about Discharge probably more than any other band during that period. Wow. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's like a little specter of like street punk or something. I don't know what, what it's, it's, it has a giant wall of sound. Yes. I feel like it's, like, it's just, it's just, I can't imagine them. I never saw them, but I can't imagine them being anything like that. I can't imagine them pulling that sound off. Like they were pretty, live. pretty big sounding live, but yeah, really? I mean, the, the, those recordings though, they have that, they always sounded to me like a, I mean, that Phil Spector equation is really, that's perfect, because they really had that, um, it always sounded like a big craft landing or something, like a little massive steel ship. That weird bass sound they have, like, and then the DB, yeah. Not the beat, but the bass sound was, like, affected in some way. It was, like, and then there'd be that pick slide. It was just so fucking... And they're just so on that one groove, you know, that their songs are just so, uh, yeah, locked in. And, it, and it, it's bouncy and good. It's like, it's not, it's not like, you know, like a lot of punk is, is really stiff. And yeah. It still sounds good. And I really like, also, I really like the uh, sort of haiku quality of the lyrics. It's like, amazing. There's like, you know, it's like, there's like three lines to every song and they repeat them. And it's, yes. it just works. It really works. And yeah, the test of time, I mean, listen to those songs 35 years later, 40 years later, and they still sound fresh and good. That's no small feat. Some things have fold up. Some things, a lot of blood, most stuff doesn't. I mean, it's just, yeah. like some, you know, stuff that you listen to at that, that, that age when you're, you know, you don't know anything. Or it holds it just as a curiosity or, or, or a nostalgic quality, like a lot of generic thrash I find like heartwarming kind of, but, but yeah, it's true. The discharge thing to maintain that kind of, uh, what do you call it? Like just intensity and relevance. That's like the way the bad brains still sound so mighty and epic and, and yeah. you know, prophetic or something. It's just timeless. To me, they were, the bad brains are more of a, until I saw the bad brains, you didn't have to play with the bad brains. Um, and that was just like, Oh my God, these guys are just insane. I remember, I, I think we played them once. Yeah. We opened from the Tijuana at, at the Iguanas and, uh, because in the band, I got to go back. I got to go like up on the so sort of back in the rafters where the, where the lights were and stuff like that. And, like I watched like the last couple songs, the Bad Brains. And you know how HR does that thing where he like jumps up and does a standing flat back foot and wins. Oh yeah, like, absolute last note of the of the set, like bam, and just, and then just walk off. It's like that's like holy shit. It's like it's, it's, it's nothing. There's nothing like it. Nothing uh, like it. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Off the hook. Yeah, and the crazy. sound they had, the quality of that, like their live sound, that was another thing that I remember so much about them was just the sonic quality of them. They sounded so goddamn good. Everywhere that other bands would play, they just sounded so much better. Well, they were super pros, too. Like, I mean, super like, pro. like, the, like they, all, they all play. And like Dr. No had this, yeah. big, I don't even know what he's playing, but it had all this rack effects and stuff like that and all this stuff. 
it was it was something well beyond anything anyone else was doing. It was it was. What year was that, and what band were you with at that time? That was Pitchfork. That was Pitchfork, and I'm not sure what the year was. I'm, I think it would have to be like I don't know, eighty-eight, eighty-nine, something like that. Um, I think it was the year. Maybe it's the year that that that. Uh, remember how they put out that with the quickness record, and like they recorded with somebody else, and then they and then uh, and then HR went, went back and redid all the vocals. Right. Yeah, that was the follow-up against that. Right. It's kind of a disappointing follow-up. It, yeah, and they only played one song from that record, and the rest of it was just, just I don't know, maybe they didn't know the songs with him or, or whatever, but they just played, and I didn't care if they didn't want to hear those songs anyway. Yeah, right. But, um, yeah, I think it was I think it was right around, and, and one of these, uh, one like, kind of like this New York, the first, of, the first of the New York City, like, kind of like crossover-y, like, hip-hop punk bands opened it, and they, they, they went very good. Who was that? I can't remember. Um, Madball? No, no, not metal. Like, metal. Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, they were more. They were more. Yeah, it was. It was some other, some other bands from here. I can't remember. They were, they were like one of the B ones. They weren't like a. Yeah. They weren't like the Chromags or Ludacris or one of those bands. It was like, wasn't the Crumb Suckers? It was a band, but it was a band in that sort of. Milk. Um, something like that. Yeah. But, um, so let's go back to subculture since we touched on that. Your fanzine, you said it wasn't really a real fanzine. I remember it being very well produced. It was like a well a professionally printed with, and when did you start that? And how many issues did you do? You said you started just after the leading edges, first couple issues. I started in high school. It was the first, it was my first foray into, you know, the punk world. So, you know, I, I didn't, I couldn't play an instrument. I couldn't do anything else. So um, I just, uh, I worked on it tirelessly. And I, uh, I actually went and got it printed by, uh, um, I, I worked at the print shop, so I got, so I got him to print the whole thing. And he did like, his offset print on like, yeah, on, uh, semi-gloss paper and the whole, I, I really tried to make it look really nice. And, uh. Um, you did. I still have my, I've, a subculture, the one with COC on the cover. Oh, uh, I think it's DRI actually. Is that DRI? Yeah, that's, uh, that's like a spike from spike. DRI. Right. Um, yeah, that's that's a great issue. Mm. That's the first How many one. did you do? Two. The Two. second one, the second one, Mickey Vukovic did it. So the, the cover photo was like an art sort of photo. I, that just got decidedly more arty. The next one. Why and did you pack it in after two episodes? I mean, issues. Because I tried to sell it, and um, I went to a show. I took I took I took my fanzine to the show, and it cost me like you know like a dollar each to print the thing. So it cost. I mean, I got a discount, but it still cost a lot of money to print it. And I had all these fanzines. I went to the show and tried to sell it, like, you know, these punker shows. And, like, uh, people were just like, fuck you, fuck that. And I just, like, I was like, <laughs> and I was, I was just like, I was like, and, just, and that was it. I, I just, like, I mean, I took them to lose a few things like that. But that was, that was it. I didn't, I didn't, I, I saw, you know, I sent, I sent them out to Fact Sheet 5 and took them to lose and tried to swap through the mail, but I just couldn't get rid of them. And, um, no, and it was just, you know complete apathy about it. So I just, uh, I just stopped yeah, doing you, it. You put a year into this thing and a thousand bucks? Fuck you. Yeah, you know. Yeah, a lot of time. No one, you just no one gave a shit. So so I, 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 I uh, you know, I just, I just, uh, and that right around then is when, is when I sort of, I think I got into, when I joined Pitchfork. So, so I was already, you know, this, yeah. you know, this, this is, this, this is better. Much more rewarding in a lot right. of, in every way, yeah. Right. So when did Pitchfork start, and how did that come about? 
Don <laughs> says that you 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 met him because we had Don on the ep- a couple uh, episodes ago, let, okay. episode before last. Okay. He was talking about that you came over to his house. So it was first Don, or did you know John beforehand? I I'm not sure if I met. I think I met Don first, and then I met John at uh, one of those uh, like like anarchy picnic things at, at Mariner's Point. You know, like in, in oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot all about those—the punk rock picnic, the anarchy picnic. Right, right. That was my uh, that was the first. That was that was uh, that's why I met him, and um, and we got to talk in and blah blah blah. And I think I introduced John Don to John, and um, they ended up starting a band, and um, that was with John Joey and Sean. Yeah, that was it. And uh, they had they were a three piece for at least a year, and um, and at one point John. They recorded, you know, like, you know, the community college with with, with Simon Sheppin, mm-hmm. and um, and John really hated the way his vocal sounded, oh. and he decided he decided he wanted a singer, and this other guy just said Matt tried to be, they tried to, uh, try to cut a couple guys out, and uh, basically it it came down to I was the only person who would actually buy a PA and do it, I was the only person who would, who would actually commit to it, so I so I got the job of being the singer. Well, that's hilarious. I, I had no idea about that. So they were three pieces before you got them together, but then you weren't a part of it. And you joined later. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't, I didn't. Yeah. Um, but you found out that you were a singer. Well, you could do it. that, but I could do it. I, I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I felt exactly the same when I heard my voice and I was like, Oh my God, this is fucking awful. <laughs> but, oh yeah. It's terrible. It's a horrible thing. Um, I can't, I can't like go back and listen to that and like, and like not just, cringe yeah um, isn't that weird about our, when you hear your own voice it's there's something about that i found that actually with doing this podcast i listened to some episodes and i was like oh my god i don't know if i can do podcasts i yeah listen, listening to myself talk you know not it's the awesome. quality of my voice but just what i'm how i'm yeah it's it's a weird disgusting it's a, thing it's such a shock because when you, when you when you speak you don't I mean you hear yourself through your own body cavities and your voice yeah. sounds completely different to you it resonates in a completely different way and I mean, you're hearing it from within. Your ears are hearing what's coming from the inside of your body. So you think it sounds a completely different way than it actually does when it's recorded. And it's like, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, I always say to people, oh, well, it's, it's like hearing yourself, you know, people don't have answering machines anymore, but, you know, that's like when you hear your, you know, the message you left on the answering machine, like that. that's what you sound like. That's what you sound like to other people. And, um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, they, and they've always known this and, you, and you've never known it. And it's uh, it's just a really horrible realization that you're like, oh my god, this is what I start like. <laughs> and they loved you anyways. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's just funny. Well, that's the thing though with singing though. It's I mean, especially in punk. I mean, it's like just having a per- personality and a, you know, it's not about anything other than just being exactly what you are. And so that's your voice. That's your voice. And I mean, you think of all so many great punk singers who just have a one thing that's and it's like yeah you, you become attached to it i mean bob dylan or something think in rock and roll it's not about having a great voice it's just about having i guess half of it is just having a voice and just doing it like you said yeah i think he has a great voice actually but but um he uh, it's just it's just i think people who do this it's just a it's just pure compulsion it's just it's just like you have to i just i have when i look back and like oh why did i get into this it's like I'm not this kind of person at all. It's like, why did I do that? Um, it's just, I was compelled to do it. I, I Where does want. the compulsion come from in you psychologically, do you think? I don't know. It's like, 
first of all, I just, I just love music. Music is like, is just, uh, um, I mean, it's like a, it's like this life force thing. It's like, it's like, when I listen to music, it's, it's like, uh, changes everything, you know, the way I feel. So yeah, it's yeah, magic. I mean, it's real it, magic. It, it's crazy. And like, it's, it's, uh, and I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be involved in that somehow. And I wanted to, I'm not saying like, yeah, I wanted to give back, uh, but I just, I just, I just, you know, I wanted that. That's, that's, it's amazing. You know, it's like to be able to like generate that kind of energy. Um, it's, it's, I don't know. It's just a, yeah, it's an ancient, ancient impulse in humans. I mean, it's one of the, probably the most ancient expression that human beings did. I mean, I'd imagine maybe, I can't can't imagine that cave art became before cave singing, well, you know. After the speech and stuff like that, before that, but yeah, but but yeah, I, I'm sure it's, it's I'm sure it's yeah, it's uh, rhythm and stuff like that. It's just the oldest thing ever. I mean, it is. Um, One thing I wanted to go back to for a sec is those anarchy picnics. We went from talking about the most ancient impulse of expression in human beings, but I also want to talk about just that the anarchy picnics of. Because that's something I have not thought about prior to our conversation. I've been doing this now 14, 15, this will be the 15th episode. That hasn't come up. And that's really an interesting thing to me, thinking about it just now that San Diego punk being what it was, you know, the slow death (laughs) fighting, you know, scene that I've talked about so much. It's really kind of heartwarming and amazing to remember that there were these daytime events in parks where the scene would (laughs) get together and have a picnic. I think there was like maybe two or three. I, I went to yeah two two of them. Um, I think uh, I remember who this guy George and that, that he had. There was like this anarchist uh, sort of uh, almost a zine. It was like a, it was almost like a, a broadsheet or something like that was folded over. Um, it was the Daily Impulse. George George the guy George organized it, and um, John's band played. Uh, I think I think Coitus Interruptus was the name of the band. This is um, John Reese's band. Reese's band, um, and and they had like you know like a, like a couple pallets out there and like a little PA and and um, yeah some, some punkers and eventually of course the police showed up and <laughs> of course <laughs> that's the first time I ever thought police violence. <laughs> what did the cops do? They just showed up. They just showed up. People probably were complaining because it was like it was like you know like these terrible yeah. punk bands playing and they're trying to you know enjoy their cheese sandwiches or whatever and um <laughs> and they they came and shut us down and of course the kids being punks were all like yeah you fuck you <laughs> a little mini riot started <laughs> at one point one of the kids <laughs> fucking stole the. Uh, the Billy Club. I, I, I run out of this this cop's belt and just took off running like, "Hey, look, I stole your Billy Club!" They caught us and beat the shit out of him. It's like it's like it must have been a rude awakening. Like, yeah, you still you still a cop's Billy Club. They're gonna kill you. Oh my um, god! Yeah, the humiliation <laughs> of having your Billy Club stolen by a punk is like yeah. Oh, well, like, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure he scored lots of points. Like, unless they're like whatever. Pat Brown ran the cops down kind of way. Right, yeah. Like, sure. he was like, yeah, he was, I'm sure he was, like, he was the coolest thing for... But they really, they really kicked ass. Um, yeah, this is the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. It was pretty funny. 
So even the <laughs> even the sweet daytime event picnic was still a cop beat down, and there was still violence. But yeah, classic. There was so many. I mean, God, man, there's so many cop experiences like that. They're just they would just they would just they just used to come. Punks punks were a threat. They were like punk was a metal was a threat. It was like it was like, I remember like I remember like. Oh, oh, we're gonna de-punk and de-metal everyone, and blah blah blah. blah. Oh yeah, it is. Uh, they were really done for us. Um, yeah, for sure. And yeah, but it, I, you know, it was a, it was silly. It was it was a game or whatever, but it was it was fine. You know, it seemed like you know, real thing. You made it exciting. Yeah, it you, made it kind of exciting. Yeah. So Don talked about you introducing him to the guys, the Crash Worship guys, and Simon and Blood Lake and all that. What's your memory of encountering them, and how did you become friends with them, and what was yeah your involvement in that scene? I met I met yeah. Simon initially because uh, I don't I don't know how many people know who who this band is. I mean, you know, this is all band. about obscure stuff, so go yeah. obscure as fuck. Um, I met here. Simon because of the fanzine. I, I put up a notice and lose the window at lose, and um, he was the first person to respond and the first person to contribute, and he contributed to that to both the fanzines and all. And the uh, oh. other guy Marcus did too. He was he was an artist, and um, so that's how I met him. And then they, oh well, yeah, we're gonna start this this band, and that's actually the first band I was ever in because again, I didn't really play anything so I could play drums sort of. <laughs> yeah, right, sure. <laughs> so I mean I could keep it you know, I could keep it keep a beat. So I was in that first and then um <clears throat> and there's this this I uh, just what a bunch of you know, what a, a cast of characters in the band like Jason Lane and Yeah. Just Jeff Matson and all these crazy people got, got involved with it after and became this this whole thing. Um so when I was in it it was like, you know, we'd play like you know Chapa Lava or whatever. It was something, some cafe. It was going to be like, you know, 10, 15 people there. And it was just sort of a party thing. And then it became. So it was more of a band thing. at that point. It turned later into the tribal meltdown thing that it became. That it was, was like, the later. Yeah, it, it was like, I, I don't know. It's like, it's more like a, what, what the, like an open mic-y equivalent to a, of a band. You know, it's like you, you kind of, you show up with your drums and yeah. noisemakers and that was it. Um, and it became this whole production where they would you know, blow places up and light things on fire and um, squirt blood at people and et cetera, et cetera. became really popular. Um, but I got out of it because it was, I just wanted the rock and roll thing, I think. Yeah. So I remember um, after, I don't know what, I guess it would have been during the Pitchfork era, there was a time where you and I you inspired me to refurbish my BMX bike and trick it out and get it back in in uh, in commission. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I, I remember. I remember you were one of the few people I knew who cared about BMX. There was there wasn't a lot of people who did. Um, that's something. I, I, I that was my one of my first obsessions. You know, like that's what I was going to ask you about. What was your experience with BMX? With um, did you race? Yeah, I did. I raced. Uh, I was. I lost a lot. I wasn't very big and I wasn't very strong, but I was, I was, uh, I was like, I was a quick out of the gate and skillful guy, but I, could, yeah. like, I would get passed pretty much from, you know, at some point. <laughs> I started yeah. the front, I started the front to get passed by the bigger guys. Um, and I used to race at Rancho a lot 
Uh, Where was that? That was in El Cajon. That was the uh, that was one of two of uh, one of the two downhill tracks in the country. It was a great track. It was just awesome it was just like a yeah it was famous even in the northwest i remember hearing about it that was, it was a great track and was corona norco i never i never raced there but rancho we you know let us love the local track and we raced there all the time it's a great track and it, um i could go on and on and on about that it's like it's like it was just talk about so, it so far and yeah it was just it was just, it was, just a, it was a great track it was uh it started off you know so at the top of the hill and that's kind of a, you know the first straight was pretty flat and then it just when just dove down into his first berm that was and it just stepped and then I was downhill. And his first berm was enormous. And they had to water it or else go home being really dry so like I was developed this layer of powder over the top of it and, and people like every like, you know, fourth moto, people just fly over the over the people get swooped and just fly over the over the side of it. And it was especially fun to watch when it was a side hacks racing. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's, that's where you have for people who yeah. don't know side hacks are like a sidecar like on motorcycles but on bmx bikes it was a really weird kind of early bmx thing that's so crazy and practical no first of all there's no utility to it at all it's like why None. why would why would you put this on why would you put this 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 appendage on, this, on the on wieldy yeah yeah so you can only race three of them at a time because it's two guys per bike and there's one guy the monkey and he pushes <laughs> and and <laughs> he pushes the bike and he's just running along pushing the bike because it's they're heavy and you, and you have to get this thing going. Yeah. But uh, when when these guys would like all three of these guys, they're they're all kind of you know neck at neck, and they and they all hit this first burn. One at least one of these guys is still flying over the side, or two of them I should say. And the, the monkey would just jump off because he wasn't. The other, but the other guys, <laughs> the side hat guys were, were were clipped in. They they would, they would use toe clips to keep their feet on the pedal. It was so easy to slip them. Right. Back. So they would just fly off there with the guy and in just just. Attached to this <laughs> giant bike, <laughs> it's an insane contraption. <laughs> it gets so messed up. <laughs> oh, just imagine a full so side hack landing on you, like after going over some huge berm. Yeah, because the side hack itself is is probably heavier than the entire bike. Oh, yeah, like, for sure. Because like, they always make it like, like crappy steel or whatever, and people. Yeah. Like, your dad, you know, your, your dad can weld this, and he builds, he builds you one. Or there was a Gary, Gary Littlejohn was the company that uh, yeah mm-hmm. that made the side hacks, but um, yeah, but most people didn't have those. They had just like you know these, these homemade ones, and they were it's kind of like a soapbox derby meets BMX kind of something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, you know I don't even remember that I ever actually saw a side hack race in real life. I mean they weren't obviously they didn't take off as a thing, but I remember looking at it in the in the BMX magazines and just thinking, how the fuck would that work going over a jump? With like a dude hanging out on a steel cart next to you, <laughs> they could they could jump, they could, but it wasn't it wasn't like some, I mean in some in some cases the jumps were just like there's no not jumping you're gonna get you're gonna you're gonna get airborne in these jumps no matter what there's just there's just yeah. no yeah I mean in racing you're trying to stay on the ground mostly right so you can pedal but, yeah. but there's there's jumps that you just you're, they're gonna launch you and you well especially on down downhill courses you yeah know, yeah. I mean, those downhill courses, I remember um, going to one, because I, of course, I was going to these in rural Washington, you know, outside of Seattle and Tacoma. Mm-hmm. And, and so we had more of a rainy, foresty, dirt, loamy kind of, and if it had rained before, muddy, you know. But uh, hitting, there was one that was on the side of a lumber, or an area that had been clear cut, you know, and they had mm-hmm. built in this this course, totally downhill. 
And I remember being, do, you know, they would have that open track where you could go ride before the thing started. And I remember going down it and like hitting my brakes because I was too scared to go so fast, you know, like yeah. just hit those. It was terrifying and so big, like like you were saying, the berms are so big to keep people from flying out. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, this is a whole nother level than like your flat track at a, you know, yeah, suburban kind of BMX track. Yeah, terrifying. It, it it was terrifying. I remember I remember as like a, just like as a we would do a lot of you know out in Southern California there would be lots of places where we you would build tracks like you just take your shovel and go yeah. out there and there's there's lots of available land and there was places like uh, they'd be build they'd be building like track housing or whatever and they it would stall and it would take take them years to complete so you go out there and just mess with these lots they'd all they all tiered off and stuff and you could make all kinds of things out of those. And there, oh, was, yeah. there, there was there's great places to to be you know a teenage daredevil or whatever pre teenage daredevil and so when it, when I finally got to, to actual racing I wasn't as I wasn't as terrified of the op- of the obstacles as much as I was just of the people around me right um, who who were going to knock me over and or run me over and um, I know that there's bicycles but like when you get run over and like you get like or like a, you know you get a pedal I have scars on my body still like oh yeah. yeah. Like when they had it's like like it was like the, the, like the pedal that was the worst was this, this fucking like the KKT Lightning type pedals where they were just like just bear trap pedals, the circular ones, it's the circular ones. I think it's the bear trap pedal. Then yeah. those those things that hit you and just just, just shred you, shred you, yeah, yeah, like a cheese grater on your leg, you know. Oh yeah, and they were, they were yeah. literally they were like bear trap, just like. Blah. Yeah, I remember I used to file my my. Uh, did you ever do that where you file the teeth on it so that they stick into your shoes even more? Yeah, kind of a weird. Yeah, so they were literally were like sharpened bear, yeah. bear traps. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they looked cool as hell. Oh um, yeah, <laughs> when, when they hit you, boy, that was that, that was painful. They just tear you apart. You're done. And yeah, the thing that I think you know, sometimes I'll watch like old BMX you know, YouTube videos and things like that of that era. And, you know, some of them look really ridiculous, like the sh- like an indoor track that's so short, it's like over in two seconds, and the jumps don't look very big. But, like, yeah. the reality is when you're actually, like, thinking back, I remember going to, like, a, uh, like a national, a big national in Monroe, Washington, and uh-huh. with all the, all the big guys, you know, the Stu Thompson and everybody, the huge yeah. racers. Ever. They were adults, you know, and seeing oh, yeah. them, like, go around the track in the pack at the pro main, Mm-hmm. And when they would land, all of them, you know, would land after a jump, and the whole ground would shake. And just the thought, like if one of those guys running over you, you're fucked. Those those, are, those guys are big, yeah, they're big Huge. guys, yeah. Um, what what was what was the sanctioning body? Was it NBL or there was ABA, ABA and NBA? NBA? Yeah, was, was, I think it was ABA was the big one. ABA. Um, we also had NBA down here, and we turned into BMXA. BMX of America. Yeah. Yeah. This, uh, sorry, the dog's barking. Um, um, yeah, I never got to go to one of those. I, I never went to a, I never got to go to a national. No, I got to go to one. I went to one at, at, uh, at Claremont. Um, did, you meet, did you meet any racers or get their autographs? I raced some good racers I, and, and just got just completely smoked by them because there'd, there'd be an open class. Um, oh, uh-huh. So I would I would race open sometimes. You know I was a novice. I don't think I ever even made expert um, because no. I just I just get killed. I'd like Mikey King and and uh, Doug Davis and Richie Anderson and people like that. Like guys like her. 
amazing. You raced against them? Yeah. But it's like, I didn't oh, wow. like, I finished like a half an hour after they finished. I mean, it was like, they were, <laughs> they were, they were just, you know, incredible. Yeah. They had, they had no, I, yeah. I remember um, going to, the only went to this, there was one place in the Northwest that had a national and called them is Monroe, Washington. And they, they have some footage of the like 1982 national on YouTube that, I've gone back and watched, and it's just like I remember wow. it's inside this big kind of rodeo-type, uh, you know, like outdoor metal, corrugated metal kind of structure like that you have sure, a rodeo sure. and yeah. that's turned into a BMX track. And, and uh, yeah, that that's the quality of seeing those racers. It's just like going to an NBA game as opposed to, like, a good college team or a high school team. You know, you're like, oh, these guys are really good. And then you see the NBA, and you're like, oh, there's this whole other league that's just yeah. – so much more advanced, but uh, we have Gary Ellis. I don't know if you remember that name. Do you yeah, remember him? That's, that's yeah, guy. Yeah, I remember. I, yeah. I remember he all was, guys. He was the the Tacoma Seattle guy as a like local guy before he was on GT. He was on Robinson, mm-hmm. and uh, he was the first local person to get a, a national like bike sponsorship. And he was mm-hmm. the one who who stood out like a sore thumb in our scene because for that same reason that any time he raced, he got he. One, it was never even a question, you know, locally, and so that he was going to go pro. Yeah. So yeah, until, he got, until, until he got to Cali. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. But, no, he, but. yeah, he wouldn't. He wouldn't win when national guys were there. But uh, but it was just that thing where I was like, okay, the, the national is just like all Gary Ellis's, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very exciting. I used to actually ride with the guy who became a pro, a pretty good pro. Like he was, I think he was like, I don't know, ABA number one at one point. It's this guy Kiyomi Waller. Um, uh-huh. um, and I don't think I ever raced against him, but he was, we, I'd ride with this guy. And it's like just the way he would move. It was like, he was like a panther. It was like, just like the way that, the way that this his body English, he just absorbed every, every obstacle with such, I don't know, such grace and such, such intelligence. It was just like, it was so cool to watch those guys. who could really, you know, because they could jump yeah. and they could do all the, all the fancy stuff too. But when they'd actually like, you know, negotiate all these, obstacles and stuff like that they were just like just so smooth and so graceful and so so pleasing to watch to me you know i completely concur i i, I know exactly what you're talking about because people you know commonly talk about skateboarders with the musicality and the style and and all that the, the particular voice you know of a skateboarder like skating street or freestyle bmx even but the racers were exactly the same way like there were racers that i liked just because of their Style. Yeah, style. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like a good kind of like guy is like that the way they were that you're saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. But skateboarders have that too. Like like it's it's funny to watch skateboarding videos. I mean, I I did skateboard for a little bit. Um I, I was way more dedicated to, to BMX. I thought that was just the coolest thing. Uh yeah. skateboarding skateboarding community is like, you know, man, it's like an obstacle stick with a wheel on it. Um Did you skate at like Del Mar and stuff like that? Like bowls well, or just Well my skating? first my first real job uh and I got this job actually, and another fanzine thing. I got this job because of my fanzine, and I, I got so I worked at Transworld Skateboarding Magazine, and oh really? Everyone skateboards there. That's that's how I learned how to do production art. You know, really do it before computers and all that. Jazz. Oh. Um, um. But yeah, so I just pick, kind of started picking up. Like you know, I got to the point where I could do you know some street stuff, like I could do sloppies and this and that, but. It's funny to watch like videos of those guys, like people skating then. This is like 1987, 88. Um, uh, my friend Thad, a uh, good friend, has this 
runs this bar in San Diego called Liveware, and they always play skate videos, and they play kind of current ones. And these guys are incredible. It's like, it's like nothing like, nothing like this, like, you know, like, ooh, you kick flip, and here's my boneless, and blah, 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 blah. It's like, it's like these guys just have these, this fluid energy that's just, that's just incredible. It's just like, it's, there was just nothing like that. Yeah. It almost makes you believe in that idea of, like, collective consciousness growing. Like, like if enough people learn a thing, then the whole thing advances. You know what I mean? It's crazy. I mean, I mean who's, the first, who's the first guy in, like, a, a, motor, a motocross motorcycle to do a fucking backflip? Now they can yeah. do it. Right. And that's what I'm talking about. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you practice that? I mean, I mean. Exactly. You have to, at one point, just do it. Yeah, and and, it's, and you're not gonna you're not gonna walk away from the first one or the second one or probably even the twentieth one. It's like so you you're you're just punishing the shit out of yourself, and you have to be really really dedicated to this. And these guys are, but you, you watch there's there's so much there's so much there's so much shit like that. I I you, know, you remember Mike Buff and Arl Osborne? Yes, mm-hmm. uh, Mike Buff and Arl Osborne are like BMX Action Magazine. BMX Action Trick Team yeah. guys. Yeah, Trick Team. Mike, I found I found like a site I, I don't know if a Facebook site or something like that of. of this Mike Buff posting BMX stuff and other stuff like that. There's some surfing stuff and stuff like that. Just, you know, action sports kind of stuff. Yeah. And just the, just the levels that all these things have advanced to are just, are just insane. Like this, yeah. this crazy, crazy stuff. That's like, I can't even believe they're, they're doing this stuff. It's like, and it's like, it's not just like one guy doing it. It's like a whole, it's, everyone can do these things. Everyone can do a backflip. Everyone can like, jump off their bike in middle air in the middle of the air. And I remember when like everyone like, oh, can you do a tabletop? That was like the best guy in your in your. Oh life. yeah, for sure, tabletop. Yeah, I can never do one. That's where you jump and you turn your bike sort of sideways and you flatten and your bike off, and you have flatten to flatten the bike. You flatten the bike in the air. You kind of cross the tight. You kind of cross up, and somehow you you correct the bike like a like a like a squirrel sort of cat or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> in the middle of the air. And land and ride away from it. I don't. I never. It just wasn't. It just didn't seem within the realm of possibility to even do something like that to me. And now people are like, you know, corkscrews and it's just, it's just, it's just crazy. Yeah, how does that evolve? Is it like people see what's possible, then they go, well, now that's possible. I can imagine, it so I can do it. Right. And somebody, somebody sets. There's a precedent. Somebody, somebody does something like this, and, and yeah, then it becomes possible, and and people, and people just start to do it. I, I watched a video of, of uh, some Australian kid, I think, he sent me a video of, of a kid, you know, we're talking about the backflip thing. Um, of a, of a, this is like a eight, an eight-year-old kid, and he's, and he's, he's got a big blow-up, like a, like a landing cushion, like a stuntman would use, and, 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 he would, uh, and he would just keep hitting this jump and trying to do this backflip and and he would he would fall and fall and fall and fall until finally he pulled it off and, and his parents are there like, yay imagine your parents like setting yeah. something like that for you like yay it's like this kid's go to the hospital man <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just funny it's, uh, it's just such a thing now it's like uh, you know you should you should have like Ron Wilkerson or something like that on this, on, this, on your podcast and ask him about this stuff who's that he's a really famous um, free ramp guy. And mm-hmm. um, and he's like, I think I think at one point he was like, he had the most massive air, you know. So it's like he would get like almost like a surfer, get like towed into these huge ramps, yeah, on the, like a motorcycle tow him in, and he would just you know launch himself up. Obviously, like he's like 
he's like 26, 30 feet above, or something like that, above the top of the ramp, which is already like 26, like 60 feet in the air. And then there's times when he doesn't pull it off. He has to bail, and he, and, he's, and he just, he doesn't hit the transition or slide down, and he just like goes straight down to the bottom. Yeah, he's like broken every bone in his body, I think. It's like, it's like Eagle Knievel. Uh, That's the thing I've thought about, too. Uh, the liability and the amount of money you'd have to have to get injured as much as you have to do to do those action sports. Right. Um, and just, well, also there's just a general sort of like, uh, you know, I'm saying I would never do something like that. It's, just, it's a crazy thing. I mean, I have problems riding around my neighborhood on, on a bike just because I don't trust the people on the road with me. I, I, I could never do that. I could, I could never... I don't have health insurance. I can't, like, I can't, like, do this. You, know? <laughs> you don't have the luxury of getting completely... No, I, I can't, I can't, I can't, you know, I, I can't do it. It's, um... No. It's a really strange yeah. thing. And just... Yeah, and the, older, and the older you get, the more it's like, I really can't do this. Did you, did you, did you go to the hospital at all for, for bike stuff? No, you know, I was, I was pretty cautious. I, I loved BMX, and I loved... I mean, I think as much as anything, I loved working on my bike and making it look cool and, and adding new things. It was kind of... Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't really. I would pull back. I mean, I only got third place a couple times out of all my races. I was uh-huh. like you, except I, I would lose. But it wasn't um, the the big guys. I'd be the big guy on the starting line that everybody'd look at and go, "Oh shit, you're in our category. You're like t- tall and big." And then they would smoke <laughs> me. And then they would. Then the little guy, the little wiry guy, would smoke me and be like, "I remember one time finishing a race and a word. little a little kid pointed at me. He's like, I eat that guy.'" <laughs> oh, man. Like, oh very good <laughs> that's rough yeah well i mean <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's <laughs> did you ever go to the hospital yeah twice i went i, I went broken collarbone and uh torn acl oh um, yeah doing was, jumps or racing uh one the, the collarbone was a jump it was like this uh this double jump so it was like a, you know like a eucalyptus grove and you know we have lots of those in california yeah, and uh, I was pulling it off and pulling it off and pulling it off. It, was, it, was, it wasn't, a, wasn't a problem, but I just, I just, you know, my, my, uh, I think my, uh, I just hung up my back wheel or something like that, and on, on the lip of the, of the landing, and then uh, went flying and broke my collarbone. Fuck. Uh, yeah. time, I, yeah, the other time I, I just, uh, I was doing, doing like, or like a, a school or something like that. And I was doing, you know, rock walks. You know, those are. What, describe it. That's, that's essentially where you, where you, where you uh, if you have a front brake, I didn't. Oh, right. And you just, you just sort of flip your bike around and you kind of, you kind of uh, go fakey backwards or whatever. And I just didn't, I went around too far and my, 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 uh, my knee caught the, caught the, the force of the, of the, the whole thing. And I, um, fucked my knee up and I had, first, last day of school, <laughs> the cast came off like, or the brace wasn't a cast. Came off, uh, like you know, like the first day of school. So, I, so you just all summer, you're all summer. <laughs> couldn't go to water. Couldn't go. Couldn't do, you know, oh god, that's yeah. It's a. What kind uh, of bike did you have? Well, I started off with uh, the first thing I ever had was like a, like a like a purple Sears bike with a banana seat, and I just started mm-hmm. to make it. And I started to make it BMX. I got. I went and got like you know like motocross. It was more like motocross handlebars. They're kind of like kind of long and flat, 
black. Yeah. Put those on. Got had to lose the banana seat, so I've got like you know you know like a one of those sort of square MX seats. It's still like a banana seat, and then that, and that you throw those braces that would go to the uh, to the rear wheel bracket. But it looked more like a motorcycle seat. Yeah, it was motorcycle. And then finally, you know, I I talked my parents into buying me um, a red line. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the classic one. You could you know you could look at the next and famous action. The stock one I had was white. The uh, all the sort of components and stuff like that were uh, anodized red. Perfect. Uh, and it was, you know, it was a good bike. Um, but I was never satisfied. I had to spend all my money on my bike. So I, by the time I was done with that bike, it wasn't the same bike at all. I don't think I had. Any, but I just sort of, just sort of mutated into. I, I bought. I changed the frame. I, I got like a CW frame and SCW bars. Got rid of those. I put GT bars on them. I changed rims a million times, cranks. I always use, I always use the. This is, for, this is getting really dorky, but I always, I always use one piece cranks because I always thought I didn't understand the whole point of the three piece cranks. Three piece cranks looked. Three piece cranks were ones where there's they like a, cool. a, a, there's there's a central. The bottom bracket. You know, the the yeah, bottom, bracket. bottom bracket. And then you got the the two the the side that has the wheel the the gears and the and the crank and then the other side is just a crank. Mm-hmm. And then you put them together with a screw with a bolt. Right. And one piece is just a single piece, like a what was that piece brand? Tangy was Astabula, that the Astabula, Astabula, Tangy. Uh, yeah, but they, they didn't flex, and I they didn't not, flex. Yeah, not being a very heavy guy, and I, I couldn't bend them. They were right. they were they were heavier, but they just were like I so I I just always used them. I didn't understand why. Yeah, the other one psychologically didn't feel as tough, you know. They, I'd ride people's bikes with them on, especially with the aluminum ones, and they would. Yeah. You could feel them. You could feel them. You could feel like energy being sucked out of uh, out of out of just your pedaling because because you're like going, eh, you know, kind of slightly <laughs> squishy. Yeah, slightly yeah, they're kind of they're kind of they're kind of squishy. They made right. the, they made the really nice uh, flight cranks, the red line ones, which were chromoly, but they had the same problem. They, 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 they were like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting. That's something that I. I mean, here I did the exact same thing with my bike. I did. Mm-hmm. I got a my first real BMX bike was a Sakai, really cheap. Uh, you know, the kind with where the the welds were those big gloopy kind of, you know, cheaply made. Like well, not maybe not even chrome molly. I mean, maybe it was just. I don't it was know. a it was a steel bike. Steel bike, yeah. Okay. And then I I replaced every single part until it was the bike that you and I helped that you and I fixed up the GJS. What was Chrome was Chrome GJS? GJS, that's a that's a cool brand. Um, that's really cool bike. Did it have like a weird? It had some particular characteristic to it, right? Didn't it have like some like something? It like, has the, those that 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 the welding of those tubes up at the headstock. That's There's, what it was. Yeah, like the weird yeah. It had, it had like a, a support, a support in the front that was just like a like a like a another tube, right? Is that right? Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. It like went across, like the two tubes that that met up with the headstock came in to, and they met exactly like at a point, and then there was a bottom tube that went along to join the headstock below. Okay. Not like a. And then there was another no. tube too. Yeah. Well, Torker had the two. The two on the top. Yeah. Okay. This one, people have to look it up. It's a JG, JGS frame, and it's uh, it was a beautiful. I, I remember buying it in, in Puyallup. The GJS, I thought it was. GJS Racing. GJS. Okay. GJS Racing. Yeah. North, and Northwest. Company? No, it's a Southern California one. I, I just actually learned. I can't remember now, but it was. It's one of those ones that somebody branched off from SE Racing and started it early oh, on in cool. BMX. 
Yeah, and of course, if I had it now, it'd be a super collectible bike. It's because I had like a 1979 GJS chrome frame and and fork set, and they were it was just a beautiful thing. But it just makes me think about how kind of almost a parallel to punk in this way that, well, I've talked a little bit about BMX and punk and the parallels between it, the being into it at that beginning stage when it was so underground and indie and just. Uh, boutique and community-oriented stuff. but that's weird. That, that's weird that, 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 to me, that's weird that you would draw that comparison because I don't think anyone ever associates punk with BMX. No, no because the punk culture doesn't uh, isn't a part of BMX at all. Like BMX was very hard rock. It was hard. I never mm-hmm. saw any punk people in it. Not like skateboarding where it's very punk-related you know, in terms of spirit and context, but it's more just in the actual time. You know, it's that pre-corporate, underground it's done by the community for the community. The races were put on by people's parents and right. You know what I mean? It wasn't like a professional thing where there's corporate stuff. And then the, and then from like a graphics and, uh, object fetishist. Oh, I love that shit thing. You know, I love the logos, the way I love punk. Oh yeah. And I love collecting a new, you're going to the store and buying a new headset, you know, to put in and and, and change the look of the bike. And like you were talking about too, the feels of the different brands, you know, like Redline and Mongoose to me were kind of black flag and the dead Kennedys. And then GJS, then GJS was like DRI, like a a littler cool, you know, so you'd have like your brands that you liked or, and then it would be, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I didn't hear you talking about. I mean, I, I don't make. I don't really. It never, it's never really occurred to me to uh, to that, that that these things were analogs. But um, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I totally. I totally understand what you're saying. And it, it was like, yeah, it was a very small underground thing. And there was certainly all the businesses, all the, all the bike companies were were small. They were like yeah, they were like indie labels, you know. Yeah, little little yeah, little. They made them all. Everything was made here. It was all. Um, but the whole fetishing about the, the parts and the certainly the, the jerseys and the logos, they just look so cool. It's, it's so, so disappointing cool. to look at to look to me like to like look at current BMX now. They're amazing. Like they can really they can really do all kinds of great stuff. But it's like a, uh, they just have such bad graphics and um, uh, even like the helmets look weird to me. Like the the, the you know, like like I like the outfit, the BMX outfit. Like you'd have that, you know, the the regular helmet with the with the with the Moto Peak visor and maybe like the Jofa face mask and the Jofa face mask was like the the ball that you put over your mat over your mouth kind there of. There was there was there was a couple of them. There was a, there was a one like that. Like a, yeah, like like a and there was kind of a more a sort of more I don't know stormtrooper looking one. And there was and then it had like the Oakley ones, uh, the face mask that was like uh, attached to the goggles. Yeah, and that really looked stormtroopery. Really it just, cool. It looks cool. It looks. It just, I, I look for this stuff on eBay every now and then, and it's like, it's just, people are selling it for lots of money. It's like, it's yeah, funny to, it's funny to me. I just read a whole thing about the history of of number plates and Bob Haro developing oh, yeah. the first ones that were made for BMX bikes instead of motocross motorcycles. Bob Haro is awesome, and also that guy could fucking draw. That guy. Oh yeah, he's a great, great artist. He's a great artist. He was super good. I'm, I don't know what he's doing now, but uh, yeah, he was. Like he was cool. hugely influential on me. I mean, I, when I think back to my, me too. when I look at my early BMX drawings, because my BMX went straight into punk. Like my BMX fascination and punk overlap, and I even have drawings where there's BMX people wearing like punk logos and stuff. 
Uh-huh. And 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 Bob Harrow was by far my number one. He was the influence. Bob yeah. Harrow being the he's both the he was the original star of BMX freestyle, and he uh-huh. ended up making these Harrow bikes, which became the dominant bike in freestyle uh-huh. BMX, which came in later, right? Like in the early eight, like eighty four or something, became like a real dominant thing. And then he also designed the first nameplates, and he had a company called Harrow that made the nameplate or. Uh, number plates and yeah, then I, and he, I, I, had, and he I had a couple of them yeah and he was san diego based too i didn't realize that yeah actually um, i actually built i actually i actually met him and uh and uh i went to i went to i think it was, it was harrow at the time mm-hmm. and uh helped build a track in uh at, at carl Dead raceway where where really some, yeah like he had this whole design for a track which is which is a crazy track because it's based on this this really old 70s uh skateboard thing it was like this really long concrete downhill um, that went into this giant concrete berm. So it's for skateboards. It's like, oh, I see. And uh, he, 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 and then he kind of like stuck a, a BMX track on the rest of it. It wasn't a very good track actually, but I helped build it. How um, did you come to be involved in that? I just was, I think this is one of our bike rides. We, we, it was like in an industrial park, like a, yeah, out in Palomar Airport Road or whatever, and like we, me and my friends would ride out there, and we're always trying to find people to ride with, new people. Mm-hmm. And so we would go on these, you know, these really long rides, and and um, and we, I think we just stumbled on his like little, you know, little industrial estate or whatever, and, and we uh, and we talked to him, met him, and like he, he's, he's like, well, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build this track, and we're like, yeah, I'll, I'll help, and it's kind of awesome. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll do that. That sounds great. Of course, it was. A bunch of shoveling dirt. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah um, sure, kid. You want to help? Grab yeah, sure, Grab a shovel. Yeah, that's, you're not getting paid. Um, free labor. <laughs> that's free labor. But we were all told to do it. But we, 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 it was like the, the, the treat was you, you were the, the first people to, to test it and ride it and stuff like that. And and then uh, you got to work with Bob Harrow, BMX legend. Yeah, that's pretty neat. I and think. Bob Harrow was was he uh, one of the his illustrations were very much associated with BMX Action Magazine, which was the biggest, my favorite. There was two big ones with BMX Plus. I don't BMX like BMX Action. Plus. BMX, BMX Action. Plus. That was kind of like flip side and MRR, too. I mean, not to always draw yeah. on parallels, but, but it was... Thrasher, like, no, Thrasher and Transworld, yeah. Like Thrasher, Thrasher and Transworld. Transworld has a vibe and a style that's very different than Thrasher. BMX Action had Bob Harrell's illustrations, for one thing. And then BMX Plus, yeah, I just wasn't as into it. I mean, it was I, I got them both, but BMX Action was the shit. Yeah, but a lot I of like it was because of Bob Hart. Especially with his bicycle motocross action, that was one of the, like the oh yeah, really good. It had the, that great logo. Oh yeah, uh-huh. such a great logo. That's you know, I had a I had like their photo uh, issue one. It was just pure photos, oh, yeah. and no no writing. And I I took that to my, to the national in Monroe and had literally every. Well, not literally. Almost every photo had an autograph next to it. Oh, because wow. I got to go to every pro was there, so I just walk up to him and say, you know, Stu Thompson, whatever, whoever, uh, Harry Leary, and that is one of those. That's, God, that is one of those objects I wish I still had. I mean, yeah, my dad probably threw it out at some point. I can't even. Oh, sucks. Oh my God. That would be that'd be the gem of all gems. You ever follow up on these guys? Like, just like you know, kind of. I wonder what Steve Thompson is doing right now. Just so recently, just recently, uh, I, because of this this podcast, and I've been you know doing this this uh, Instagram look back at life, and I did one about BMX and my BMX racing era, and and I started going on a major jag, looking up all those people and seeing their art because I lost 
interest in BMX when I got into punk, you know, so after 81, 82, I wasn't really even looking at it at all. But these guys all went on to race for another 10 years. Yeah. Some were still, I think like people like Greg Hill and stuff like that are still, are still involved. And like some of these guys actually still race. I'm like these old man classes, like cruiser classes and stuff like that. And can still do the job like, uh, like, or like Tinker Juarez. He does like, uh, downhill uh, you know it's it's kind of like a mountain bike it's like it's like these downhill these downhill things where you've seen it it's 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 lunatic it's lunatic stuff actually lunatic. Um, yeah it's like first generation bmx too I mean, he was like mongoose guy right from the, yeah. like mongoose seven yeah yep and he and he um was really good he i don't think he was ever one of the winningest no actually i think he was at one point i think he was a, a number one at one point when really early on in the 70s yeah. But he still Do you remember? It. That's amazing. So how old would yeah. he be now? Like probably late, mid-60s? Yeah. He had to be in the 60s. And I've seen pictures of him, and it's like, they might have been from 10 years ago, too. So. Yeah. Yeah. But still, he looked like he was ripped and like just like, you know. Sure. That guy, just like, it, it was just, it, people are really dedicated to this. They really. It's, I mean, um, Harry Leary still races. I saw that. He's still doing the old man class, cruiser class. Old man does he? Cruiser. Oh, that's that's yeah. so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. It's so, funny to talk to, it's so funny to talk to somebody who takes it seriously, because um, when I talk about BMX, it's like it's like it's people usually just laugh at me. You know, it's like it's like <laughs> when skateboarding people take really seriously. Like, yeah, it's like, no, it's like it's ridiculous. Yeah, and skateboarding compared to BMX is just like it just, just doesn't do it for me. It's like it's just it's just not it's just not as cool. No, no, like, for me too. Well, the one thing with skateboarding in where I grew up is like the Northwest. It's like BMX is so much more a fit with it because mm. you know you, it's wet and rainy, it's mossy and slick, and you, you just like skateboarding. But BMX, especially if you're in a suburban kind of area, and I always split my time with my parents' divorce between urban and suburban, mm-hmm. and uh, and living in suburbia in the Northwest, we didn't have sidewalks at where my dad lived. It was you know gravel and stuff, and so naturally you're not going to like ride a skateboard down the street. I grew up on it in North Seattle, like mm-hmm. a rutted, muddy, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it's no, a BMX environment. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. And if you what, live in like, you know, old San Diego pre-mass, uh, you know, tract home where, where there was open spaces between every suburban area, because that's where yeah. you grew up in Carlsbad, right? Or is that where you grew up? Uh, yeah, more or less. And, 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 County, and so. yeah, yeah. But, but when I, when I first moved there from Los Angeles, it was like, it was, uh, it, I felt like I was moving to the country. There was just no, there was there was nothing there. Now it's just like you know, just nailed in the face everywhere. It's all filled in, yeah. Oh yeah, it's all it's all gone. But um, yeah, you could just you, there were so many places to 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 ride and explore and just um. I'm, Again, not I, that I, you I feel really lucky yeah. that, I, that I got to that I got to just go out and bye, I'm leaving, and I just go out right miles and miles and miles and miles away, just like and we would explore and find places to ride and. Yeah, meet people and yeah, you're right. There's, 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 in, in a lot of ways, it was like punk rock in the, in the sense that you, you sort of were you're out there networking, trying to find other people who are into it. Because I had that same thing where I was yeah. always looking out for BMX people, like and to oh, check yeah. out their bike and to see if they race. And and going yeah. to races was kind of like going to shows, you know, in that way that uh, you know there were kids that went to the shows and you'd like see them from uh, or what am I trying to say? There's <laughs> kids from other schools at the races. So mm-hmm. your world was bigger than just your school. It the was. way that, yeah. 
Did you? And that's another thing that Punk did. You know, it gave you this bigger friend group to choose from. It's like, like you and I being friends in high school, we didn't go to the same school. If we weren't into music, we never, well, we might have met through BMX, but we wouldn't have met through anything else. No. No. It's a, yeah, it's a way to meet people. It's also, you would, uh, yeah, you would size the writers up, see if they were, you know, compare yourselves to them, see if it was better. It, it, was, it, was, it was a competition about it. It's like, just like music. There's like, a, you know, yes. like, make it be better. Yeah, he, he, when you play in a band, you want to be the best band of the night, every night. And it's like there's no, this ands or buts about it. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just that it is competitive. And, and, a, and the, thing, the difference between skateboarding and BMX is skateboarding is based on style points, whereas BMX mm-hmm. is based on crossing the finish line first. And that's, You're talking about BMX racing, yeah, because right. BMX obviously became well, a freestyle well, thing and all that. Yeah, that I was, I mean, I was just, a, you know, we just wrote on jumps and tried to yeah. show off and show up, show up in that way. We, we didn't like to have ramps or anything like that. Those, yeah. those, those absolutely terrify me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't come near a ramp. Like um, a big, like thing where you oh, drop in. Yeah. No. It's also like, it's also like, it also seems like BMX trying to be like skateboarding. It's like, it's like, this is, this is for skateboarding. It's like not for. I feel like that's exactly what it was in that era was everything was going towards skateboarding. And then BMX was like, we got to be cool too and start riding on ramps and doing you know, right. tricks and stuff. Right. Yeah. It was, yeah. it just wasn't as, uh, wasn't this, wasn't what bicycles are for. No, I watched a really funny video of Bob Haro in like 1985, maybe when all the colors of the bikes were, you know, eighties mm. mauve and purple and pink mm. and turquoise. And, and he was doing a demonstration like in Indiana or something of BMX freestyle with these little teeny ramps doing these really silly yeah. looking tricks where he rides up it and then goes backwards and everybody's like clapping. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, just... <laughs> Those guys have a coaster brakes on their on their bikes, so they do like kick turns. So they'll go like yeah, yeah. Stand on their coaster brake and flip it around, like down like it's like this three foot ramp. It's like oh my god. Everyone's clapping. I'm just like oh my god. Compared to yeah, seeing a pro class go by you at it just lightning speed and landing off these huge ramps together, downhill berms and stuff. I'm like this is so much more gnarly and impressive. Yeah, but yeah, well, you could win. Yeah, there are trophies, you know. You could win it, you just trophies together. It, it was like it was like yeah, it's like little league, sort of. I mean, it's um, also the, the, the great thing about BMX that was that was really for me was it wasn't a team sport. And I me too. Well, I don't I don't I'm not I'm not a team player. Right. Um, yeah, that's oh I got I hadn't really put that in there too. That is a hundred percent. I'm the same way. I was on like two teams. I played soccer for like three games before I gave it up. Because I just hated the coach, I hated the uniforms, I hated yeah the whole deal. And you have, and they, they designate your position for you. You don't, you don't. I mean, it's like they tell you what you're going to play exactly. Yeah, I played soccer too. That's only that's I think that's the only organized sport I ever really played. I didn't. I mean, I actually like or I, I like I like baseball. I think I think I, I, like, I like that sport. But I never played it because I would I would go with my friends who would play baseball. Like my my friend was like a catcher for a little league team, and he had like his marine dad and would yell at him like you, you did it wrong again you idiot you know you struck out three times it, 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 he'd just yell at him it was, it was like like fun i remember my dad um and my dad's a great guy and stuff like that i'm not trying i'm not i'm not trying to shit on my dad but like i remember once he was, he was trying to pull the shit with me like like at like racing at like the velodrome in like uh in san diego which is like mm-hmm. we had the bmx track in the middle of the velodrome you know like where the bikes go around and uh and he was telling me he was, he was trying to like describe to me you know why I lost and uh, and uh, 
what is doing wrong? I was like, I just gave my dad, here, you tried that. <laughs> <laughs> so he came, he came up this charting date, and he would try anything. He's, he's, he's credit. And he was credit. And he, you know, he hit his first set of doubles and just, just ate shit. Just like, just like, a, yeah. just face planted. And that was the last I ever heard of it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so he actually did it, though. Yeah, he tried it. And face planted, and you're like, okay, no more. We're done with you. You telling me to go back to yeah. Oh, that's awesome. You try it. I love it. That's fantastic. Well, that's the thing about it. If it was Little League or something like that, then then it's like, well, I mean, then he probably could, and it's, you know, get the ball like this, and, and you know, you yeah. don't tip your pitches, and blah, 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 blah. You know, whatever it is, whatever the, the Little League equivalent would be, but like a... Uh, yeah, but he'd hate up coaching points, but would be an yeah, he has, he has, yeah, he has no favorite reference at all for doing this. So he, has, he has no idea. I mean, it, it, his spikes are small, and he kind he of he looks like ridiculous with his ass sticking out, just like <laughs> eating shit. It was it was it was a it's like a kind of a little bit of a, it's sort of a little a sweet jewel in my life, like watching my dad eat shit after telling me like I couldn't do it right. <laughs> Oh man, that's perfect. I think we should end it there. That's fantastic. I love <laughs> okay. that story. And the sweet jewel in your life watching your dad face plant on a BMX track yeah. after telling you to go faster. Yeah, like, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, that's You're awesome. not doing it right. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, wonderful. Well, thanks so much for, for doing this week. Now we'll have to do it again and talk about music. <laughs> no, I love yeah, to yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. BMX the whole time. I mean, yeah, I that's really, pretty. That's pretty yeah, funny, actually. That's yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was great to talk to you. Um, uh, stay in touch. And-